So, if you've listened to Boney M's Ma Baker song, <laughs> you might want to pay attention to the lyrics because it's very applicable to today's interview. Linda is from the East End. She's got two books out. The links will be in the description box as to her books and all of her socials. Anything else if you want to send her any nice messages about how lovely she is dressed today. <laughs> <laughs> and fascinating story we're gonna go through some quite hard-hitting crimes and linda was so staunch that when they sent her down she would not comply with the authorities and admit guilt to something that she hadn't done she could have got out a hell of a lot sooner so she ended up serving 18 years and was in there with some of the notorious female prisoners, Rose West, mm -hmm. Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley, yes. So we will be touching on those characters as well as we go throughout Linda's journey today. So huge thank you for coming on, Linda. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, thanks for a signed copy of your book as well, The Locksmith. Yes. And... <laughs> I'd like to start this interview a bit differently from some of your other ones then and just ask how it felt for you when that sentence came down for something that you hadn't done, which was an, a murder, wasn't it? Allegedly? Yes, it was. Yes. Um, well, when that happened, unlike the first time when I was arrested and I was charged with armed robbery and I did commit that cr the crimes that I was charged with and... Nobody likes going to prison, but I accepted it. And I got seven years for armed robbery, which going back in those years ago, it was the biggest sentence in Holloway Prison. Wow. And when I arrived, they went, oh, my God, oh, will you do it? I said, well, I'll do it because I committed crimes. So you've got to look on both sides of the coin. If you're prepared to go and... Rob, you've got to be prepared to, if you get caught to take the other side. Um, unlike the, my second sentence, which was a life sentence, and I was innocent of that crime and I was fitted up by the police. And when I got convicted, the judge, I thought, I'm going to really be slated here because when I got my seven years, I was really slated by the judge. And I thought, how does he know? He's saying, I presume I know this, but I I haven't had the evidence. But he really, really gave it to me. And I thought, you really do know what you're saying. When he said, you weren't one of the small cogs, you were the machine. And it was like... <laughs> Mar Baker. <laughs> <laughs> but unlike that, the second time, I was totally innocent. And... The day it happened, I was treated as I actually was a witness to a murder. And they offered to do um, the forensic tests on me to prove whether I used a gun or not. They'd done them on that day. And before I went to go home, they said, glad you've done that. We've totally eliminated you. And two days later, the head of the murder squad knocked on the door and said, we're charging you with the murder. So I said, 
well, how is that? You eliminated me yourself two days ago. Ah, that's before we knew you were Linda Calvey. So I said, <sighs> yes, but I told you I was. My, I've signed my statement, but we didn't know you were that Linda Calvey. You are now our suspect and we're charging you with murder. Oh, my goodness. Which I was obviously totally shocked about. And I truly believed that I would get a not guilty at the trial. And when I was found guilty, and appropriately enough, the judge's name was Justice Hidden. <laughs> which I thought was really appropriate because the evidence was hidden that proved that I didn't do it. <laughs> and he said at the end, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do because I'd been found guilty of murder. All I can do is refer you straight to the full court of appeal. Do you understand what that means? So I said, not really. He said, you are walking out of the dock an appellant. Also, when I was charged, I was charged with gangland murder. And everybody said to me, you know what that means? You get 21 years up, gangland murder. So I was like, oh, God. And he said, I'm sorry, I will sentence you to seven years, which was a third of the minimum that he should have, charged, uh, have given me. So I believe he knew there was a lot of skullduggery had gone on in my case. And unlike the first time when I was really told what a terrible woman I was, this time he put his arms out like this and went, I'm sorry, all I can do is refer you to the full court of appeal and give you seven years. So of that seven... If it's such a serious crime, do you have to serve all of it? Yes. If you get a life sentence, you have to serve every day of the time they give you. Well, I ended up serving 18 years because I refused to say I committed the crime. So every year did you come up for Every like, time it was... Um, when I got to the seven years, my door was opened. It was a dinner time. Everybody was locked in and there was like this and yes I went Linda I'm just opening the door can I come in and I went no so he said I've got something to tell you and I said well tell me so he said they've just added another eight years on because you've not admitted your innocence, uh, your guilt and everybody you could hear everybody must have had their ears on the door because everybody all went <gasps> And there was like this big sigh went round the wing. And I said, oh, is that it? Shut the door, bye. And I walked in and thought, oh, I don't believe this. They've put another eight years on top of the seven. And they went, how will you do it? I said, the same as I did the first seven. I will never say I committed this crime. So was it like a panel you had to speak to and you got to go in and say, I'm guilty, I'm remorseful? Well, you had to, I mean, when you went for your um, parole, Unlike, I mean, people, if you've got a set sentence, you could say every day, I did it, don't care, I did it. When you get to the last day of your sentence, they have to open the door and let you out. With a life sentence, it's different. You have to 
tell them that you're sorry and you didn't do it. Who are uh, they? Well, the pro board. So what's but, it like? Do you have to go into a room with them? Well, you get interviewed and you, um, you put your case across. And every time I said, I didn't do it, they went, well, you won't go home. I said, well, I won't go home. I didn't do it. And it was only that they actually changed the law to say, well, it is a human system. We accept there are guilty people that have gone free. We've got to look at the other side and say there can be innocent people that are locked up. And that was taken away that you didn't have to admit you did a crime to go home. And thank God they did do that because otherwise I'd still be sitting there now. So you you go through the day of getting sentenced for seven years, parole, they had eight on. And then there was it was added on again up until... So you had another parole <laughs> yes, seven I, years I, later. Yes, and then you get one, and then the following year I got one. And it's like Shawshank, um, isn't it? Yes. And I actually think probably the main reason that I did get my last parole was because... I was in open prison then, and you were allowed out on Sundays. And some of my friends picked me up, and we went for a meal. And sitting, waiting, they said, oh, your table won't be ready yet. And I sat down next to this man who's also with somebody sitting, waiting. And I started chatting to him. And he said to me, oh, are you married? And I said, no. And I said, are you married? And he said, no, I'm divorced. Um, and he said, oh, I've been divorced twice. I said, oh, I've been a widow once and divorced once. And he said, can I take you out? You seem ever so nice. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you can take me out next Sunday. <laughs> and he said, well, can I take you out Wednesday or Thursday? I went, no, I'm only allowed out on a Sunday. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm in prison. And he went, Prison? Well, what are you doing sitting here? So I said, I'm now at the end and I am allowed to go out for so many hours on a Sunday. And he said to me, okay, that's great. I, I will take you out next Sunday. And he actually turned up late and I thought, he's not going to come. <laughs> he's, he's changed his mind. But he did turn up. And it was, um, I'd gone back upstairs and I said to one of the girls, if anyone pulls up, will you call me? Everybody else had gone. And she went, Lynn, has he got a red roller? And I went, yeah, it must be. And I come down and there he was <laughs> standing next to his roller waving like this. And the one of the staff said, we've took the number. If he's a criminal, you know you're back in closed. And I said, actually, he isn't a criminal. <laughs> he's so honest. He's told me he's a legitimate businessman. He's a Freemason. He's, he's all the things that... Anyway, I think probably because of him, um, I did get my parole and I ended up marrying George. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And Linda was not single at that point of time in her story for lack of suitors <laughs> because many proposals came in, including from one of the Cray twins and from UK's one of the most famous prisoners, Charles Bronson. But yes. we are going to get to those stories. And the Rolls Royce 
is also a reoccurring theme in your story, isn't it? It is. I mean, when I was young, we I was um, had a lovely, happy childhood, but there was nine children. My mum and dad worked. There wasn't a lot of money like most people in the East End. Um, my dad had this rusty old van, and one day we were going to visit my aunt, and I'd said, oh, can I come? So I was with my mum and dad. And on the way coming back, we stopped at the lights and this big red car pulled up with this man in a suit with a cigar and this lady with a fur coat. And I went, when I grow up, I'm going to have one of those fur coats (laughs) and I'm going to have one of those cars. And my dad said, I hope you do, darling. He said, because that's a roller, a Rolls Royce. That's the best car in the world. And if you've got a Rolls Royce, you've cracked it. (laughs) Well, through all my criminal time, I got a whole wardrobe full of fur coats. I've got some lovely cars. I never got the Rolls Royce (laughs) till I met George, (laughs) who was the totally um, straight, legitimate person. It was was fate. Yeah. So your first sentence then was armed robbery. Yes. How many years did you get for that one? Was that a seven? Seven. And did you have to do all seven? Um, When I got my sentence, the judge said, he wanted to give me 21 years. And he said, it's a pointless exercise because you'll win your appeal. Then he said, I'd like to give you 15 years, but that also would be a pointless exercise. And he went down the list and in the end he went, I'm giving you seven and recommending you do not get any time off on appeal and you serve your whole time. But because everybody else appealed, my appeal was put in. And I got two years off, which took it down to five. And out of that five, I actually served three years, eight months. What year did you go into the prison for oh. your first time? And was it Holloway? Yes, it I spoke was there Holloway. A few times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's empty now, but it's quite a daunting yeah. place. I spoke to the general population and to the foreign population separately. Yeah. So, what year did you go into Holloway the first time, God, approximately? I was. About 38, I think, first time I went in. And what was that like for you? Um, well, it was a culture shock. Yeah. I mean, even though I'd grown up in the East End, etc., and I knew a lot of men that had been in prison. But when I say a lot of men, the men I knew were actually the arm robbers, which were the, I suppose, the elite that were all smart and well-dressed and lived in nice homes and sort of loved their families. And I just imagined everybody in prison was like this. <laughs> and funnily enough, it was Bill, who I've done the the memory in there too, that he went, Linda, 80%, 90%, he said, you wouldn't want to even spit on. They're terrible. He said, listen, when you get there, you just take your time because whoever you talk to, you're lumbered with. He said, but you'll see... Like when people go to prison, it's as if they've got a built-in radar that you all of a sudden see everybody matches up with who they belong with. And it actually is very true. I mean, did you find that? Absolutely. And it's like there's an X-ray on everybody, isn't there? Yeah. And because you're in such close quarters with these people, you're living with them constantly, everyone picks up on everyone's yeah. like weaknesses, strengths, 
exactly ticks, but it's true got. it's like um you'd get sort of all the sort of junkies were all congregated together all the sort of africans and west indians that had bought drugs in and had been arrested at the airports whatever they sort of congregated and it was you sort of you could work out and everybody fitted and then there were sort of a few little odd people and I fitted with a few little odd ones. <laughs> <laughs> take, take us through your first day, going in, what it was like. My very first day, um, keeping in mind that I hadn't done a day on remand and because there'd been deals done with the police to say, don't put don't put her on remand. Let her be out, and that's why so many robberies were offered over. Help her out, whatever. Um, so I, it was a total culture shock. I went in there not doing one single day, and they said to me, "You're not going to get, you're not going to get found guilty. We've put you down as duress." And even the police said, no, it was duress. She was made to do it by these men. When the judge went, no, she didn't. She was the machine. But when I arrived in prison, I turned up with these um, stiletto shoes and this designer suit. <laughs> and two days later, I'm still waiting for clothes to arrive and I'm scrubbing the floors in this designer suit. And the first thing they say is, can't wear them, they're, a danger they're dangerous. So you get given a pair of jelly shoes. Which so, are what? <laughs> like the, the sort of jelly shoes you go in the sea in, you know what kids go in the sea in. <laughs> so you're given those. <laughs> and when you arrive, I'd got there and it was quite late and there was only two people left in the waiting room. And I think they were left because they were nutters. And there was one looking at the wall going, turn your head to pray to Jesus, turn your head to pray to God. And I thought, oh, if this is what you've got to live with. And the other one was just going, shouldn't be here, shouldn't be here, shouldn't be here. <laughs> it was like, oh, please don't tell me this is what I've got to live with. And I went through and they said to me, oh, we'll give you a little toiletry pack, which was a flannel and a bar of prison soap and a little cheap toothbrush, and they gave me this little brown pack with powder in, which I thought, oh, that's bath salts. And I thought, well, where's the toothpaste? And they said, right, you have to go and have a bath because you've just arrived. So I've gone in and thought, right, put the bath salts in. That was actually tooth powder. When <laughs> 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 I come out, I said, I haven't got any toothpaste. Uh, they said, we give it to you. Uh, and I said, no, that powder, that was, wasn't that Radox? They went, no. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they went, I'll give her that and give me a tube of toothpaste they'd confiscated off of somebody else. But that was my first thing, and I was taken up, put in a basic cell on my own. And they said, you will be kept in there for two days till we assess how dangerous you are. So this is like a reception cell, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the next morning, there was the hatch opened and the screw went, uh, what do you eat? So I thought, oh, you give them a menu. So I've started saying all oh, this, this and this. And she went, don't be funny, vegetarian or normal. So I said, well, I suppose I'm normal. 
and there was this <sighs> blue plastic plate came through with two pieces of bread, a lump of marge, and the skinniest little piece of bacon like this. And I thought, well, if this is what you feed, you're I die of starvation for I'll get to the end of my sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first night and my first morning. How long were you in that cell for? Oh, only a couple of days. And then I was moved up to the reception wing. What was that like? Well, it, it was a lot better. Um, you were let out, not all, all the time, but you were out for so many hours. Did you and get your own cell in there? Yes, because of, I had the sentence I did. And they said, oh, we've got to get you a single cell. And... Um, this girl called Vivian, who was actually an hermaphrodite. And she said, she can have my cell, I'll go in with somebody else. And she gave me her cell, bless her. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because she was just genuinely altruistic or your reputation was carried forward? I don't forward? know. <laughs> but she, no, I, she was, it was, I thought it was very nice of her to say, let her have my cell. Other yeah. than she might have wanted to go in with other people. I don't know. Yeah. Could have been lonely. Yeah. Well, I think that a single cell is the best thing in the world. Yes. It's like living in a toilet with someone otherwise, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's in um, Holloway, singles or dorms. Ooh, with with dorms. four. <sighs> and it's okay if you choose who you go in with. Mm. But often when you arrive new, you just, it's potluck who you go in with. How were the people in the reception area treating you then? Were they coming up and making friends? Were they trying to mooch off you? Were they well, I being think nice? I've never been asked so many times, have you got a fag? Yeah. <laughs> have you got yeah. a fag? And I went, I don't smoke. I thought, thank God I didn't. And as time went by and I saw new people come in and they'd go, have you got a fag? And as soon as somebody, they'd go, yeah, and give one or give a roll up. They'd be the next person going, got a fag. And then they'd go and give them. And then all of a sudden, they'd hardly have anything left to go, oh, I can't give you. And then it'd be, why can't I have one? And they'd want to fight them. Yeah. So I used to think, thank God I wasn't. <laughs> it never ends. They'll be lined up at your cell door, yeah. taking, trying to take everything you have. Yeah, they do. Yeah. When you're first there, it is. And if people are sh show signs of weakness, they really, they get literally everything took. And did you know that from the get-go, or were you learning the ropes? Um, well, I was told before I went, um, watch out, Linda. Don't give anyone anything, because if you give one person, you'll have everybody. Yeah. So I was given quite good advice there. You've got a very confident way about you, so I imagine people were like, this woman's not going to take any shit. So. Yeah. And another thing, the first time I went in prison, I thought, why is there men in the cells? And it was, they're not men, they're dykes. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, yeah. they've got open old boots on. And like, <laughs> but really, there was like a few that you'd think, what are they doing in a woman's prison? I spoke at Send Prison just before the lockdown, and there was a few couples in the... Mm. So it's like the butch and the lipstick. Yeah. Yes, I did notice that, yeah. 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 And some of them really, really are butch that you could say 
it was a guy. Yeah, I wouldn't like to arm wrestle them. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I was lucky when I don't know if it was that my reputation preceded me, but everybody wanted to be my friend, which was a good thing, really. Were people coming up to you, like offering to do f favours for you and stuff? No, it was, I mean, when the first time I went into the um, TV room and there was somebody went, oh, I get up and give her a seat. And I thought, if I say no, I won't take this seat. That's going to look on, I'm going to be weak. So this girl got up and sort of went and stood at the end where the seats were. And I went, thank you, and sat down. And I felt really horrible that I took her seat. But I thought, no, I've got to do this. It's survival of the fittest, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so how are the guards treating you in this reception area? Most of them are fine. There's always the odd ones with a chip on their shoulder that... They've got that because they think, oh, they can bully people in there because they can't bully people out. But on the whole, I think most of them, it's a job. And they're pretty fair, most of them. Is it mostly male guards in the female prison at this About point? half and half. It was half and half. Mm. And did you get treated differently by the female versus the male? No, not really. They were all sort of pretty much the same. Yeah. So you have to do some tests then to... So they can ascertain your security level. Is that it? Your, your, mm. your risk. So you did those tests in the reception, and you have to get reassigned somewhere else after reception. Um, I think they sort of decided. Well, she seems quite normal. <laughs> she seems quite sane. So I was put on the workers' wing and given a job. The workers' wing. That's your own cell again. Yeah. So is it just a standard like one bunk, combination sink, toilet? And hardly anything else in there. Yeah, just a little wooden table, a bed, just the bare necessities, really. And did they assign you a job right away? Yeah, I was given wing cleaning. What did you have to do? Just, well, scrub the floors. Because at that time, when I went in the first time, there was no mops, no mop buckets. Um, second time I went in, there was. It changed. But when I very first time I went, it was... Uh, you could have a big bar of this sort of carbolic soap and a scrubbing brush, or you could have a tin of stuff called Chemco and a little green pad, and the floors were scrubbed every single day in Holloway. It was so soul-destroying. Did you have to do the showers as well? You had to clean everything. Everything. The only thing was with cleaners, you were out more than everybody else. Yeah. So you got that bit more normality that you you could make yourself a cup of tea or you could sit and watch the telly for a little while while everybody was in before you had to serve the meals etc because you're out more than everybody else are people asking you to pass things around oh yeah <laughs> what, kind of stuff? <laughs> what kind of stuff oh, we... ask this one for tobacco ask that one for and there'd be drugs going around and they, they all got to know, don't ask her, she won't pass no drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I went, no, I'll pass anything else. <laughs> so to be asked that one if she's got a donut, ask that one. <laughs> but yeah, it's sort of, that's what it was, go around and sort of pass things through to everybody. Did you settle into a routine? Well, you do, you have to. The one thing you learn when you get there, you can't buck the system because the system always wins. What was your routine? 
Um, well, getting up in the morning, you'd go out, have your breakfast. Um, then most people got locked in or went off to various jobs. Um, and then you cleaned the wing. You could s sit down for a little while then get ready for the girls when the trolley come up to serve their meals. And I suppose that was a perk because you could look in the trolley and pick the best bits <laughs> for yourself. <laughs> so you, and, you and, did that. And in the area out of yourselves, then, is it like a day room with a TV and tables yeah, and stuff? because, I mean, going back all those years ago, there wasn't TVs in your rooms, in your cells. Yeah. That came much later. So were people getting in fights over what's going to be on the TV? How's that scheduled? Well, I mean... I think they all loved the soaps yeah. and everybody was locked up at eight. So virtually it was, that was sort of pretty safe that that's what everybody was going to watch. Yeah. But when I went the first time, you were allowed 12 photos. Mm. Um, and if you got more than 12, they were put on your property. You'd get called in and they'd go, you've got this photo. And they'd hold a photo up and go, do you want it? And you go, Yes, we'll go and get one and we'll swap it. I mean, that changed. People had dozens and dozens of pictures second time. Um, and the first time, it, it was a lot more harsh mm. than the second time I went. I was allowed seven photos and like anything else is contraband and like yeah. five books. Yeah, that's it. We so can many destroy books. this. We can classify <laughs> this as contraband and destroy this. Exactly. And we were allowed three sets of clothes. Um, three footwear, one had to be your slippers, one had to be trainers to go to the gym in, and one pair of shoes. But three, when you think three sets of clothes, and that was it. And these are clothes you can get from the streets, or are these are clothes that are state issued? No, no. You, I mean, if people didn't have clothes, some people come in and they didn't have anything. They would be given stuff. But it wasn't a uniform. I see. But wing cleaners could wear um, white overalls. So I used to wear the white overalls and save my free sets of clothes. <laughs> so after the meal in the evening, after you finish work, are you in your cell trying to relax, reading, watching TV? What, what, well, no, how, there was no TV I mean, first in the time. Day room, in the day room, yeah. Yeah, in the yeah. day room. Um, how did you unwind at the end of the day? Um, I used to buy a newspaper. I used to read a, buy a newspaper and read that every day. And when I went in at the end of the night, I'd sit and read the paper. Yeah. And that was my unwind. The people write to you? Yes, I used to get loads of letters. Because mail call is, can be the highlight of the day sometimes, <laughs> can't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I've got about 60 marriage proposals. <sighs> And I think they must be mad. Who would write and ask somebody to marry you you've never seen? And they're locked up in prison. <laughs> what about visits? Um, yeah, they were the highlight. And they were really precious. You got your hour or hour and a half. And every minute it flew from the minute you you people come in that you'd sent your visits to to the visits finished and you'd think oh that time's gone so quick and you sat at the table with the person can you give them a hug at the end yeah yeah they've got the vending machines with the food yeah 
Yeah, oh, it is gold, isn't it? It's gold. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, the food is so shit. I want some of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how did it come about then that one of the craze proposed to you? Well, when I was away the second time, yeah. Um, my friend Bill, that I'm referring to again there, um, he knew him. And going back in time, I'd actually... Um, met Reg once when I was out with my cousin and her husband and I said that I met him once and there was something in the papers about me and Bill said oh she's so lovely blah 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 and Reg said yeah she seems nice everyone who knows her says how nice she is and he said oh she actually met you once but she said you wouldn't remember she was only a teenager blah 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 and he went Oh, give me her number and I'll write to her. And he wrote, and at that time I was in Durham in the men's prison and we could have two incoming calls a week. And he wrote and said to me, can I phone you? And they went, oh, Reg Gray wants to phone you. And I went, yeah. <laughs> so it was like, oh, God, it was like this big Reg Gray's phoning. And he phoned and we really got on well. And he phoned every week. <laughs> and he used to send me bouquets of flowers. Wow. Um, and the first time I got this huge, great big giant basket, you know, like they'd give you on a sort of premiere first night. And two screws carried it across and went, we've let you have it because it's Reg Cray. But tell him you can't really have these. They've got to be normal bunches of flowers <laughs> so I said to him oh thank you it was really really lovely but if you send me flowers again they've just got to be bunches of flowers not big baskets and then I regularly used to get um white roses from him wow yeah so if he's speaking to you every week then what kind of stuff did you guys chat about all different things I mean the day that his brother died yeah. I think I was one of the first people that he phoned. Mm. And he was absolutely devastated. And I think that sort of shows how close we'd become. Yeah. That I was at that time working in the workshop in Durham mm. and the radio was on and it said, oh, we interrupt the news to say that Ron Cray has died. And I thought, oh, my God, poor Reg. And... About 10 minutes later, there was Linda Calvey back to the wing. And I went back to the wing and the PO said to me, Linda, Ron has died. So I said, yeah, I just heard it on the news. He said, well, Reg has phoned to ask if he can speak to you. So I've told him I'll get you back on the wing. And he's phoning back in about 10 minutes and he phoned me. And I said, oh, I'm so sad to hear this. And he's he said, can you believe, he said, I'd put in to visit my brother, saying he's very ill. And he'd just been in the office and they gave him his paperback, refused. Mm. The governor said, your brother's not ill enough. And he had that paper in his hand. As he was walking back to his cell, somebody looked out of their cell and went, oh, Reg, I'm so sorry. And he went, sorry for what? They went, it's just come on the news, your brother's dead. Mm. And he went, I had that paper in my hand saying the governor said he, was, he wasn't he was ill enough, it had been refused. 
Bloody bureaucrats. And I said to him, don't give up, because he always said, I've got to get home to get my Ron home. Mm. He went, I won't give up, I won't give up. He said, I will keep keep going. That's a shame. Mm. So how did he come to pop the question to you then? Um, After he'd been phoning for about three or four months, yeah. he said to me, you're single. I said, yeah. He said, so am I. He said, have you thought about getting married again? And I said, who to? He went, me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, do you think that's a good idea? Will we ever get out? If, if I marry you, or you marry me? And he went, maybe not. He said, forget I said it. And he said it again a couple of months later. And I said, I really don't think it's a good idea. I said, maybe if you're home and I'm home, it would be a different matter. And he went, yeah, I guess you're right. So he said, don't mention it. I said, mention what? And he went, thank you. <laughs> Bit of a dilemma, isn't that? And I used How do you to politely get, decline? I <laughs> used to get proposed to by Charlie. Charles Bronson. Every four or five months. What was your first interaction with Charlie before the proposal came about? Um... I used to speak to him as well on yeah. the phone. Right? Yeah. So you got two calls a week. And it was, it no, was really. no. I'm with Because um, Charlie often was down the block. Okay. I never got calls. But I would get calls from him maybe two or three times a year. Right. And it'd be, he called me Black Rose. Hello, Black Rose. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? You're going to marry me? Have you made your mind up yet? <laughs> <laughs> Have you watched the movie then about him? Yeah. What did you think of that? Well, I thought it was, I really didn't, I think he played him perfectly. Yeah, he's a good actor, isn't he, Tom? But I didn't think it was good for Charlie. The artistic license. Yeah, where yeah. he was sort of, I don't think it, it was right. I think it damaged his yeah. ability to get out. But having said that, I think he played him amazingly. Yeah. But I think the, the plot, the storyline wasn't fair to Charlie. Do you write to Charlie now? No, I send him books. He's had that one and he loves it. And he had the Black Widow and he loves that. Um, and he sent me out a picture Linda, Linda Calvey for um, L Mayor of London. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, mind you, I think I could do a better job than Sadiq Khan. <laughs> yeah, Brian Rose, who's a YouTuber, is coming in at number two right now. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to see yeah, him. Yeah, I've done some work with Brian. Um, it would be amazing if a YouTuber became the first, <laughs> a bloody politician. Yeah, it would be. Yeah? It would be. It's just the power of YouTube to, to get that far, to be number two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, any other famous, notorious gangsters, criminals um, that you encountered? Well, I mean, the two monsters, Rose and Myra. Mm. Let's because we've got a big American audience, and this is going back quite a, a long uh, period of time. But I remember growing up, Moore's murders, Ian Brady, Myra mm -hmm. Hindley. Not only did they assault and torture and murder children, they didn't they record some of it as well? Yes, yeah. 
on the moors. I mean, horrific. Yeah. Really horrific. So when someone like you, who has a the value system, you know, you don't harm women, don't harm kids. Um, well, the first time I saw Myra, I actually slapped her around the face. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Just walked up to her, or did you say something? No, it was. I think it was so spontaneous because at the time it was in Cookham, yeah. another one of the prisons I was in, and they put me in the library. And she was in the laundry next door washing the, the women's clothes. And there was all this tape across, do not step across, you will be put on report, do not insult her, whatever, all this. She was sort of protected by this line. And I'd only just got there. I hadn't actually seen her yet. And one of the staff come in and went, Linda, before the factory comes out, you can take your washing in and give it in, save your queuing up. So I said, okay, thanks. So I walked in and she was bending over, singing, emptying a washing machine. Singing? And I thought, how dare you sing? And I walked up and just went slap and she stood up. And there was a handprint on her face. And she went like this <laughs> and went, I could get you shipped back to Holloway for that. And I went, Holloway holds no fears for me and marched out. And I thought, <laughs> oh, don't send me back to Holloway. It's took me all this time to get out of there. But she wow. never, she obviously didn't report me. But the next day, um, another staff member come in and said, Myra has a coffee break in here. Have you got a problem with that? And I went, well, if this is where she has her coffee break, this is where she has her coffee break. And that was it. And she used to come in and sit with her cup of coffee <laughs> and then go back into the laundry. Did you say anything to her? Not really a lot. I mean, sort of just, she'd go to me, okay, and I'd go, yeah, okay. And But, I mean, what do you want to talk to her, really? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think Rose, I mean, they're both monsters. So Rose... West then was Fred West was it wife or partner? Wife. And didn't he pick up like um young women at bus stops and stuff like yeah, that? But also killed their own children. Uh, and buried one of them under the pavement. And said so, yeah. so the told the joke the family joke was behave or you'll end up under the pavement, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean I know one day, um I don't know what what she was talking about. She was saying, Oh, I'm totally innocent. I never knew, blah, blah, blah. And there's all girls sort of sitting there going, oh. And I went, well, didn't you notice your bunk beds was getting higher to the ceiling? And she went, <laughs> and they went, oh, Lynn, why did you have to say that to her? <laughs> Because I read that he, Fred, was prostituting her out to police and giving information to police. Maybe. On drug dealers. Yeah, maybe. So... They weren't looking at him. They, were, they gave him a pass because yeah. got to get the drug dealers. I mean, I don't know. Versus it the was serial right. killers. I think one of her children, they proved she must have killed because he was locked up at the time. Right. So far from saying she didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Mm. Are they dead now, those two? No, he is. He hung himself. Fred. Yeah, when we was in... Um, when you signed the wall or something. So just, we was in we were in Durham Prison and all the blokes started singing, Fred West, he's gone and hung himself. And he, they were singing it all night. And 
the next day we all come out and went, oh, God, did you hear them? And she come out and went, what was the matter with them men all night singing that Which Way West song? <laughs> she was the only one who didn't realise what they were singing. Yeah. So what happened to her in the end? Is she, is she just still inside, is she? She's got natural life. Does she get attacked by people because of I the nature of the crimes? I think she has over time. Yeah. Imagine Myra got attacked as well. Yes, yeah, she did. Convict justice. Mm. Um, I mean, Myra's dead, Fred's dead, but um, Rose is still in prison. Any other big name from famous cases that you came across? Not really. Um, no, I suppose there was a few, but not that well known that people would would sort of remember them. Imagine because the women are a fraction of the total population yeah very small so the women probably get to know each other in the system do they and everyone gets you know there's people a, there's, do yeah yeah it's a lot smaller population than the men yeah did anyone ever try and challenge you in any way then no even the guards did any of the guards play games with you try and you know mess around with you do anything no. weird no no so you had it you know your respect carried forward mm. you had it sounds like you had quite a good um incarceration in terms well, of your relations yeah. with everybody I suppose else. If, yeah, if you can say it's good. Yeah, I suppose I did. Yeah. What was your lowest moment then? Um, Inside. I think the day my daughter got married. Oh, because you couldn't be there. Yeah. And they went, you can have extra phone cards, Linda, to phone and see how, how it's going. But yeah. I've got one daughter and... To phone and people go to me, oh, she looks so lovely. Oh, the wedding's mm. lovely. And I think that was probably my worst day. Did you miss any important funerals while you were away? I did miss funerals. Um, luckily, my parents were still alive when I came home. Yeah. But um, sort of more distant relatives, the ones that you wouldn't be allowed to go to, sort of cousins, etc. Yeah. How did it feel when your parents came to visit you? Well, my mum used to come regular. My dad, the last time he came, that was in Durham. And when he left the visits room, he collapsed. So he, he never come again. Yeah. Did your parents try and, like, say are you a changed woman and things like that during the first sentence? Well, I think my mum and dad especially my dad. My dad would never see any wrong in me. Okay. And my dad said, it wasn't her, it was the men. My dad always, I, I was totally innocent in my dad's eyes. But in the sec on my second sentence, I said, Dad, I am innocent. And he said, oh, I just pray I see you come home. And, and he did. So if your dad thought you were innocent all, all the way all through. All the way through. My mum knew I wasn't. I mean, if they went, but she said she did it. He went, no, it wasn't her. It was, they made her do it. Did, <laughs> did your mum hold up hopes that you would go on the straight and narrow during the first sentence? Well, well I actually did. I came home and I started a, a curtain business with my <laughs> sister. And um, we were doing quite well. Yeah. And it was only, I mean, I was getting all these, I think because of who I was, people, oh, yes, you can make my curtains and whatever. <laughs> and we did these curtains for a wine bar. And um, 
the guy whose wine bar it was, he said, oh, thank you to so-and-so builders and so this one, that one. He said, and a special thank you to Linda Calvey for the curtains. And somebody shouted out, well, let's have it right. You'd have to say that if they was rags. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, no, but I really like them. <laughs> but I was actually doing quite well. And then I got fitted up for the murder. How many different jobs did you do throughout your incarcerations? Oh, loads. What was your favourite? Um, well, I was the hairdresser for a while and I worked in the gym. I suppose they were my favourites out of, out of the jobs. Did you do fitness stuff then in the gym yeah. regularly? Yeah. Helps you get through it, that, doesn't it? I used to run seven miles a day. Wow. Except Sundays. Yeah. And I used to do an hour of um, step aerobics wow. every day. I was really, really fit in prison. What was your least favourite job? Um, I suppose scrubbing the floors. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a bit demeaning. Isn't it? Did you ever get to work in the kitchen? And yes, I get, did. Get your hands on some of the grub? Yes, <laughs> I did. <laughs> Because it's like a black market, isn't there, if you yeah. work in the kitchen? Yes. Yeah. yeah. What else was available on the black market? Well, I suppose everything. If you've got enough money, you can get anything you want. Did you see it change over time, the black market, like phones come in and stuff like that? I was that later. Um, there were no mobile phones when I was away. Okay. I know that is, I mean, that's everybody's got a mobile phone in prison now, I think. Did the drugs that were coming in change over time? Well, there was heroin coming in and coke coming in and puff coming in, which I suppose, it, but now I think is that dreadful spice and yeah, it, which, yeah. why anybody takes that? I what just about, don't know. What about classes, like educational stuff in prison or like they made us do anger management, cognitive See, therapy, I refused. all this stuff. I Did said you? I'm not doing it because I didn't commit the crime, so I'm not going to do any of the courses. Yeah. And they went, but you've got to. I said, no, I haven't. Yeah. And I'm not. <laughs> and that was it. What were your favourite things to get from the inmate store, the commissary? Um. Well, I like chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> what, what chocolate specifically? <laughs> Well, I like bounties. Bounties. Yeah. 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 I like the whisper bar back then. Or, yeah. um, arrows. And I used crunches. to buy my own coffee <laughs> instead of the prison stuff. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot nicer, isn't it, if it's coming yeah. from the, the inmate's store. So during this first incarceration then, you did seven, you said. As mm. you got close to your release on that first one, did your mindset start to change? Did you get gate fever? Um, no, I don't think I got gate fever as such. I mean, I just, all the way through my time, I never ever ticked a calendar off. Yeah. Ever. And I used to think when people put calendars up and they'd sort of go, oh, in like two years' time, I'll be home. I used to think, why do you do this to yourself? You're ticking a day. Mm. I never had a calendar and I never ticked a day off. Right. Because in my situation, I was fighting my case for 26 months, and that just seemed to last forever. Yeah. But once I was sentenced and I knew when I was going to get out, it went faster and faster and faster. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a sense of time speeding up? Yes, I think you do. And I, my time, I judged on visits. Yeah. And that's as far as I looked. Yeah. So if I had a visit today, I'd go, right, 10 days' time, I'm going to see 
my sister and my so-and-so or whoever. So I sort of, that was my time scale. So you marked it. I never went past that day. And then when they come and they'd say to me, whoever was going to visit next, I think, okay, 10, 10 days time, I'm going to see this one. Yeah. And that was my time marker. Yeah. But I never, ever used a calendar. So even though people didn't challenge you, you had the respect, you tend to see a lot of crazy things going on around mm. you in prison, self-harm, fights, yes. suicides, yeah. guards having sex with prisoners, whatever it is. Yeah. What, were the, what were the craziest things that went on around you? I think Holloway was probably one of the craziest yeah. because they had C1, which were the people that really shouldn't be in prison. What's C1? Um it's really the, for people that should have been in um, sort of mental institutions. And they were sort of just put in prison because there was nowhere else to put them. And that was sort of horrible, really terrible. And the things some of the girls done to themselves down there was horrific. Do you mean like self-harming and yeah, stuff? Yeah, but real, really bad self-harming. Yeah. Setting themselves on fire and trying to cut lumps off their self, not sort of, I mean, some people go, oh, I've self-harmed and there's like a little scratch, but mm. people that literally dug lumps out of themselves and and you think, how sad is this? And they're locked up in a prison. And did you hear the sad stories of these women, what had led to them being in prison, like mm. child abuse or didn't have parents? Loads of them. I mean, that was one of my biggest things that I, when I first went to prison, that I'd had such a good, loving upbringing. And the majority had had awful upbringings, real, real horror stories that you think, really, you're victims. You shouldn't be in here. You should, you, you know, where was people to help them, to sort them out? I would say that prison for me was the best education in addiction, uh, the psychology of addiction, people with addiction issues. Mm. Because when I was growing up, I thought, right, heroin addict lives under a bridge, goes out stealing all day, yeah. lock them up, throw away the key. But when you hear the horrible things that happen exactly. to them as kids, it completely changes your perspective, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, because then they're not given any help to deal with the child Nothing. abuse. And so they get onto drugs to self-medicate. A lot of them, they've got no homes. They're put out, they live on the streets or they sofa surf. And they get put out of prison and I don't know what they get given, about 45, 50 quid. Off you go, on your way. What, what are they supposed to do? Yeah. They've got no home. They've got nothing. And they wonder why they all keep coming back. Yeah. And that's why one of our missions on this channel is to end the war on drugs. Stop the criminalization of people with addiction issues. Yeah. Just put them in these private prisons to make all this money off the back of yeah. them. And give them some real help. It is sad. I mean, my sister, I know it's, it's not in a prison as such, my sister's a social worker and she works with heroin addicts. And she had a young girl, she said she's quite a scary girl, and she came right up to her face and shouted in her face and stood back and she went, did that frighten you? And my sister said, actually, yeah, it did. It wasn't very nice. She went, can you imagine how that was? when I was seven and eight, and that was a man doing that to me. Oh, and it puts it in perspective. It does. And then you think, why did they go on drugs? To, to ease the pain and the horror of what they've lived. 
I watched a TED talk and it showed pictures of all these like young girls who'd been abused and all the audience was like, oh, you know, what can we do for them? Then later in the talk, she showed pictures of all these older women in prison, teeth rotting out. I, I used to see I, I, the same ones that were young when I first went, pretty girls, and then you'd see them come back and they weren't so pretty and their teeth started rotting and you'd see them sort of eight years down the line and they'd have all these dreadful teeth and horrible skin and their hair was all, and you think, this is so sad. Because in the talk, she then said to the, because the audience, when they saw those pictures, they were all like, oh, we don't want to help them. Exactly. And she said, these are the same people. people. Exactly. And, and like, yeah, yeah. It is so sad. It is. It really is. Um, so, craziest thing you ever saw a guard do then? Um, break a girl's arm. Break a girl's arm? Over what? <laughs> yeah. No, he bent her arm up at back and her arm snapped. Snapped? Yeah. Was she just playing up, uh, yelling, screaming? What was she? She was um, she was arguing with somebody. And a staff came, member? No, another girl. And somebody grabbed the other girl and he put her arm up at back so high that it went snap. Oh. So when something like that happens then, do the women kick off? Well, it was like everybody started shouting and it was, in your rooms, all in your rooms. And... Yeah. Do you think she would have, you know, there would have been some way she would have been able to address that and got a conversation I mean, or something? This was, as I say, going back on my first sentence all those years earlier, and I think you probably didn't have a hope in hell of getting anything sorted about that. No cameras, nothing. Guards no. just back yeah. each other up. Yeah. Mm. Any other guard brutality that you saw? No, not really. I mean, that you used to see a lot of fights with the girls which I think girls can be even more spiteful than men at times. Fighting over, like, um, debts, drugs, jealousies. Yeah, yeah, all of those. Yeah. Yeah. So when the men fight, you know, it's usually full-on fists, and then you see them in the cell having a smoke afterwards because the beef is squashed. Yeah, but with girls, it carries on. Does it? Yeah, girls never forgive. Really? It just goes on and on. <laughs> yeah. So as someone who was respected then, did girls come to you to try and get you to settle their disputes with other yeah, girls? Yeah. How did that work? They said, oh, look, please go and speak to her. And I'd have to go and say, look, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> look, she really, really is sorry. Even if she's going to me, bloody bitch, blah, blah, blah. I'd go and sort of change it and go, look, she's really sorry about this and she really wants to talk and blah. And it more I think about it. And then I go, yeah, she really wants to talk to you. <laughs> but I often got them back talking again. Did you feel like you became a mother figure to naughty kids? Well, I did when I think I was up in um, Wakefield in Newell because I think they fought for a joke. They put me in a young offenders. But it backfired because all the kids loved me. <laughs> <laughs> and they all used to go, Ma, 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 can they do this to me? Ma, can you help me fill this out? Ma, <laughs> so I think it really backfired on them. And had you done something to piss the guards off for them to do that to you? No, I've just got, I think purely because the second sen my second sentence, I just said, I'm not doing anything. I'll work, but I will not be doing any of your um, tests and any of your 
uh, as you say, like offending behaviour. I'm not doing it. So they were right. I just kept getting moved about. So when you refuse things, like in Arizona, you refuse to work, you get a disciplinary ticket written up with yeah. sanctions. Oh, I never refused get... to work. Okay. I always refused to do the um, the things that they, you know, those, I mean, I'd do that. The courses and yeah, stuff. Yeah, the courses, say, in anger management. I went, I haven't got ang anger issues, I'm not doing it. So that was reducing your, like, score, was it? Yeah. Your, your, your prison yeah. score. And offending behaviour. I went, no way. Got no chance of me doing offending behaviour. Did you get written up for anything? Once. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Yeah, once. That was um, sticking up for somebody else. <laughs> and it sort of got out of hand. Yeah. And they just charged everybody. So you were mediating a dispute. Yeah, but... and, I, and they went... That's all right, Linda, we know. <laughs> we let you off, but you had to come down because everybody else did. Were there any prisoners you particularly bonded with? Um, yeah, there was a few. Did you have some friends who like you sat with and you ate with and yeah. things like that? Yeah. What were their stories? Um all various, really. But um I mean I'm still very good friends with Tracy McNess. I don't know if you, you've heard of her. No. She um, now owns the Giggly Pig Co. And she became a pig farmer in prison. And she has become a millionairess from wow. from the trade of... And she goes back in prison. Aww. And she tells the girls how she sort of went in there. She didn't have anything. And she mm. she worked on the farm. She worked in the butchers. She looked after the pigs and she came home and she started her own business Brilliant. up. Yeah. And she's still, we're still really good friends. Is she, um, would, was she, uh, drug crimes that got, like, she yeah. got 10 years for facilitating drugs. Facilitating yeah. drugs, like a conspiracy. Mm. Yeah. And her name's Tracy, did you say? Yes, yeah, Tracy McNess. Wow. She sounds she's like. She's one of my really good friends. Is she, is she in the UK? Yeah. Sounds like she'd be a good one to get on the podcast then if um, we're trying to get more female prison yeah. stories on. Well, I'll, I'll yeah. have a word with her. Yeah, appreciate yeah. that. Any other people you bonded with? Um, a few. Yeah. Yeah, a few along the way. And I keep in touch with, but when you think over all those years, probably on one hand is the people that I've stayed in contact with. Yeah, because you have to be careful, don't you? You yeah. have to keep a lot of people away. You can't yeah. get too close, especially yeah. when you get moved around a lot. Yeah. But, you know, as much as you tell me about your prison story and the audience watching this, nobody is going to understand it as much as the people you were in there with, mm. which does create that bond for life, mm. doesn't it? Because there's all those things you can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any things about prison that you miss? No. <laughs> 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 Nothing at all. What about the gallows humour? <laughs> well, I suppose, but I've still got that humour anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I wanted to start out doing the prison stuff and then go back in time to how you got there then. So you've mentioned a little bit about growing up and you saw the roller. Um, you grew up in the East End. You were schooling me um, before this video started. What was it like growing up in the East End for you then? 
Well, I loved it. I mean, nobody had a lot. And I suppose it's all the cliches. So we we didn't have anything, but we was all all got on. But I think it actually was like that in those days. Kids used to run in everybody else's houses, and everybody in the street was your aunt or your uncle because it was just go and ask Auntie Jean if she's got some tea, or go and ask. And it was it was a very close, um, you know, very close community. Everybody left the doors open, all that yeah. background, didn't they? And there was always yeah. little bits for sale, and people go oh different things would come along and be offered. Yeah. I mean, I can remember once um, I opened the door. I was only about 12, and this man said, ask your mum, does she want to buy a lamb? And I went, all right, I'll go and tell her. And they were in the front room watching the telly, and I said, there's a man at the door, and he said, do you want to buy a lamb? And they all went, oh, let's have it in the garden. It'd be great. And my mum, we haven't got a big enough garden for a lamb. And it ended up, it wasn't a live one, it was a dead one that he was selling to me. But I remember that one. And were there any early warning signs that you may tend towards criminality or were no. you good? I was really person. good. <laughs> I was really good. It was not until I met my first husband. Well, before we jump to that then, what about in school? How were you? I was probably one of the boring kids that never bunked off for school, <laughs> did all their homework. Yeah. Any subjects that you're particularly interested in in school? I liked English. I liked geography. I liked biology. Yeah. So, when you finished school then, you said you got a job in an office? Yes. And did you enjoy that? Or was it, did it get boring? No, I quite liked it. I think I was quite a boring kid and quite a, <laughs> quite a boring teenager. <laughs> How did it change then? It changed when I met Mickey Calvey. Uh-oh. What happened? Um, he'd been in prison. He was a career criminal. And he'd been in prison. He got eight years for armed robbery and he'd just come home and all his friends had got partners and they were doing a party for him and he said um oh don't bother I'm on my own I feel you know just leave it and they went no we'll get somebody to come for you and my cousin said I'd just fallen out with my previous boyfriend and she went oh you're the perfect person You'd have to come. And I went, oh, I don't think I want to meet someone who's been in prison. And he went, no, he's lovely, lovely. You haven't got to see him again. Just come for that night. And I went, all right then. And I wasn't going to come. And then phone call came through and it was my cousin. Please come, she went, because Georgie's getting embarrassed that he said you're coming. And I'm going there thinking I'm going to meet this really ugly man. And he was set. When I walked in, I saw George speaking to Mickey, who I didn't know it was Mickey then. I thought, oh, he's nice. And she went, quick, go over. And George went, Mickey, Linda, Linda, Mickey. And he walked away. And he went, I was hoping you wasn't going to turn up. I thought, what sort of girl with 19 ain't got a bloke? She must be right ugly. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and I thought exactly the same. But that was it. Mm. I just fell hook, line and sinker for him. And then, okay, so you're enamoured. You've got this, this dashing man who's exciting. 
but how did how did it morph into you becoming involved and becoming aware of what was you know the, the, the um well i think the heavy stuff the thing was he couldn't drive and everybody else did so all the meets were in our house when they planned their robberies and plotted and did whatever and they used to do it on my dining table and I would be making cups of tea and sandwiches <laughs> and sort of looking and thinking, oh, that sounds really interesting and watching it. And then I got to where I had the job of doing their disguises <laughs> and sticking on the moustaches and the wigs and doing <laughs> scars and, and all different things on them. So I, I really enjoyed it. I got really into it. How does a meet go? Like a bunch of guys just show up <laughs> and they're like, you're the driver, you're going in first. Well, they oh. used to sit and say who was doing what. But Mickey was always the anchor man, which meant that he was the first one in and the last one out. And he said that uh, made up for the fact he didn't drive, that he would go in, which nobody wanted to go in first and nobody wanted to come out last. He's got the biggest balls, basically. Yeah, so he, it, so that was his job. Um, and then when they went and looked routes and looked for little sort of outs, holes in fences, um, streets with bollards across, whatever you could do, and... Um, I used to drive him because he didn't drive. So I probably got gradually was sort of getting involved in it. So it's you but, and him or you and the team? No, they, they'd be going, look, Mick, you look around there and we'll go over this direction and see what you come up with. So I would drive him. So I was sort of gradually getting more and more sucked into this quite exciting life. And where they would come back in and they'd have these money bags and cut the money bags open and tip all the money out. And, I mean, one particular time they came in and my son, Neil, was sitting on the floor. He was only a few months old. And they'd cut the bags and tipped all the money over him. And we had one of those, the little Polaroid instant cameras. And Mickey took a picture and he put it up on the mantelpiece and it was Neil with all this money all over him. And he said the next day, I've got to burn that. That picture would get me 15 years. Evidence. He said, but I would have loved to have kept it. Yeah. But um, so it, it was quite exciting. And then, unfortunately, Mickey got shot dead. Under what circumstances? They were doing a robbery and a policeman shot him through the back. And we have two different versions of events, the police's and ours. Go on, give and us that. And I know ours is the correct one because a high-ranking police officer said, don't name me, but I can tell you exactly what happened. He was off duty. He had the gun illegally. He was drinking in a pub. And he was taking the gun back to the station when he come ac across the robbery. And he just started firing his gun and he fired every bullet. And the last bullet went through Mickey's back and killed him. And there was Their a... version was it was a ready eye and all the police were there, but there was only one policeman there. 
So... And there was a reason that he hadn't got in the car. Yes, he'd been locked out. By his own crime partner. <sighs> so what was the machinations behind that? Well, it came out afterwards that Ron had locked him out because he'd fallen in love with me. Mm. I never knew, obviously. I was with Mickey, but he saw his opportunity to get rid of Mickey and he locked him out of the car. Bloody hell. That's Machiavellian, isn't it? But you didn't... And there were so many witnesses, because it was in the street in broad daylight, that everything, everybody saw everything. There were so many witnesses. And they all said he got locked out of the car and he jumped on the back of the car. And as he jumped on the back of the car, he was shot through the back. So the driver just assumed that he would take the fall for the crime, go to prison, and then he'd be yeah, free. but never make... realised, obviously, that he was going to end up getting shot dead. When you hear this news, what goes through your head? Well, I think that is when my brain changed because when I heard it, I remember just screaming and screaming and screaming. But I didn't think it was me that was screaming. And I heard somebody going, slap her around the face, she's hysterical. And I was thinking, yeah, slap her around the face, she's hysterical, who is it? But it was me. And I think something changed in me that day. And that was when I decided I was going to be an armed robber and I was going to avenge everything. How did you assert yourself into doing that? I um, started working with um, different armed robbers and I actually took over and I did everything. So you'd already made the connections from all these meetings and making the teas and then doing the disguises. You already knew numerous armed robbers mm. and now you're ready to step up. Was there any, like... Did they all think, yeah, right, she's got bigger balls than us? Or was there sexism? What was their attitude towards you when well, you said you wanted to go in? Well, they just said, she's, she's so much more brainier than us. Go with her. <laughs> <laughs> First armed robbery. How's that feel? Adrenaline? Take a Well, spirit. I felt like my feet weren't on the floor. <laughs> I thought I was like... <laughs> Can you take us through the day? Um... We was all getting ready. And the two particular people that I was with, um, they had their own different things that they liked to do. And one, he liked to play this Guns for Hire twice. And he'd get up and go and do this. And then Brian used to like watching the film Arthur. I know it's weird things, but it was things that, no, I've got to do this because oh, I'm always all right when I do this. So it's like really strange little rituals that people do. And um, we sort of went off at that time. I was the driver. And Did you have a ritual before you set off? No, I, I was the only one, I think, who didn't. But they all did. They all had their little rituals, whatever it was. And um, I was the driver that time and it was really exciting. And when we pulled up and it was like, go, go, go. And they came and come running back in. It was like screeching off and it was like, well, yeah, we done it. 
What's the plan then for the driver when they get in? Do you have to like have a stolen car and switch out yes, and set fire to the car and all that no, stuff? No, we have. We would have sort of two or three different vehicles parked up in different places, and I used to work all that out. And it'd either be well, there'd be motorbikes because if a police car there, they can't come through that bit, or it'd be all different things. It would take ages to plan it and two minutes to do it. Wow. And how long is that adrenaline lasting for? For days during those early robberies? Yeah, yeah. Do you and get it was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get used to it? I think, I don't know if you get used to it, but the buzz is amazing. So, yeah. you, so you step up from driver to what position? <laughs> then I was, I actually went in. And what are you loaded? What, what, you, what gun did you have? What I had preference? a son-off shotgun. <laughs> Oh, does, no, that, never... does that feel powerful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was your disguise when you had the sauna? I used to put on extra clothes underneath and then put sort of army jackets and I'd have a balaclava and probably look more like a bloke than a girl. So witnesses would describe you as a man. Yeah. All right. So on the one where you go in with the sauna first time, are you in the back of the car and there's a different driver? Yes. And and take us through it from leaving that car. What happens? You you jump up out of that car. Yeah, what because next? I can't speak. Yeah, I can't speak because they can't know it's a, a girl. Yeah. So we would go in, and Carl would go. How do you get in? Well, you just you wait. You what? wait and see what what's who's in there. What's what was it like a bank? No, the first one was the post office. Post office. So it's so it's it's, it's opening hours. Yeah. Post office. But looking looking to see sort of who's in there, who's not. Yeah. And then Carl runs and goes, holds the gun out and goes, "Arm robbery, give us some money." Right. Words. I mean, various sort of different words. Yeah. Probably a lot more swearing than what I've just. Said. <laughs> <laughs> and then. How many of you are inside at this point? There was two of us in and one driving, and I was the one that was putting the money. <laughs> and how many yeah. like are the customers in there? Is it just staff? No, there was one customer. They stay, and he had the customer around to the neck. And as soon as the staff see your sawn off, yeah, they're like, they, yeah, okay, okay. And is it protocol for them then? Are they just told hand it yeah, over? Yeah, hand it over. Don't risk your life. Don't, especially if there's a hostage. Do not, do not be a hero. Just give the money. Did you encounter any have a go heroes? I didn't. Um, they did once. But what did they tell you happened there? Well, I don't think they particularly hurt them, but they just did have a have a go hero. Yeah. Yeah. Probably put them to sleep or something. Did um, you? How many? How many of those robberies did you do? Loads. You just lost count. <laughs> <laughs> did you think you were addicted to it? Yeah, I think I was. I used to go out shopping. I think, oh, I'd follow a van. I'd see it go past. I think, oh, that's a new one. Do a U-turn and follow it and see where it was going. And... What length of time? How many years did this go on for? Oh, about three. About three. Yeah. And how did you get caught? Because I'm just Bri gonna put the microphone a bit closer to you. <laughs> because Brian's wife had put a, a private detective on him 
thinking that he was having an affair. And the private detective followed him and saw us doing a robbery and reported it to the police. So the police then knew where everybody was. But they was very good. We didn't know. And that's how we all got caught. Was there any retribution for those people snitching you out? No. No. No, it was his wife. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. So. And they went, if it's any consolation, you were so good, we'd never have caught you. Yeah. So I suppose that was a bit of. (laughs) The day of your arrest, what happened then? Was it a surprise arrest? Well, no, I suppose you always think you can get arrested. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you always do think it. So when they, did they come for you? They arrested um, all of us. Yeah. What, simultaneously? Yeah. At various locations? No, there was actually a robbery going on that I actually wasn't on, but I had been prior involved with. Right. So we were all arrested on that one day. Ah. Now, because you guys were armed and dangerous, did they have to send, like, armed response SWAT to come and get you? Yeah. What what happened? Oh, I was thrown on the floor, and I had a gun put in my face. Yeah. And I went, oh, I'm the wrong way round. You shoot through the back, don't you? Not through. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, and then afterwards I thought, oh, my God, that was horrible. And I sort of clicked and changed back and thought, what have I been doing? So that it's armed, like really crazy. So feeling being on the other side of it made you reflect. Yeah, although I was going, no, I said, oh, go and shoot me. And this gun was over my eye and it was going like this. And I was like, well, go on then, shoot me. Oh, no, I'm the wrong way around. Shall I turn over for you? With this bloke <laughs> on top of me holding this gun. And they was going, shut up, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> But it was afterwards that I thought, oh, wow. Yeah. How horrible was that? And my brain changed again. Yeah. And I can't explain it. Mm. So you knew that period of your life was over. Yeah. But you had to face the consequences. And I knew it was that I thought, that's it. I will never, ever, ever do this again. Yeah. And you never did. And I never did. So, all right. So you serve your seven years then. Tell us the murder story. Well... Um, it was Ron Cook, as you know, and I'd been and collected him from prison. We used to go home every day, once a week, and this day was no different to any other. And we just walked, pulled up at my house, and I said to him, I'll pick the milk up. He picked the milk up. We walked in. Um, it was so quick, I don't even know if he stood the milk down. And there was the loudest bang where my street door was kicked open. And I didn't know who it was when he came in. And he put an Irish accent and he went, get down on, please. And Ron looked at him and went, what's up, mate? And with that, he shot him. And I thought he shot him through the stomach because the jacket was all filled up with blood. But apparently they said afterwards he was shot in the arm, but his arm touching against him and he once again went what's up mate and I thought oh my god and I bent in the corner and sort of hid my face and with that there was another bang and I sort of just see the puff of smoke and there was this horrible noise sort of like 
which obviously was blood. And I looked round, and as I looked round, he went like that, and it was Danny Reese, and he went, "You'll be all right," and he ran out. And I was like, "What's what are you doing?" And I ran out my house, and there was a policeman walking down the road, and I screamed, and the policeman came over, and he looked in the house, and he went, "It's twelve twenty-eight. It's a murder." And it literally had happened within one minute. Within a couple of minutes, there was all the police, all the murder squad there. And there was just Ron left at the, obviously dead, and, and me. And, which is what I said, they took me in. They took me in as a witness. And I described everything. I said everything that happened, but I never named Danny. I didn't name him. And that was it. I got arrested and charged with that I did the murder, or that I committed the murder. So Ron was the guy who was responsible for the loss of your other. Yes. So was that some kind of karmic thing that came back to him, do you think? Well, I, it wasn't for that reason, I don't think. It was that he had threat, He had told Brian Thorogood that he was going to kill my son. Now, Brian Thorogood never told me that he said he was going to kill my son. But he told Danny Reese, and Danny Reese said, it's all right, I'll kill him, I'm going home. And he killed him. He never knew him. He didn't know my son. He didn't really know me. But he did the murder. And... But then after a couple of days, as I said, the police said, we're charging you with the murder. And I was charged with that he fired the first shot and I fired the second shot. And I committed the murder. But then they do like gunpowder tests They and did. Stuff. And they proved I was innocent. <laughs> That's what I was saying. On the day, they this treated me as I was. massive injustice, isn't it? It is. Because I, on that very day, it happened. Yeah. And they went, they didn't want to put me in a white suit. They said, you're a witness to a murder. Is there somebody who can bring you some clothes? We need to send your clothes away. Obviously, they said, we can see the blood is all down your back. Um, so I phoned my brother and he said, I'll get some clothes from my wife. And by the time he turned up with the clothes... They had done these tests and they said to me, oh, we're going to swab your hands and face, which they did. And then he said, have you got a hanky? And I said, I've only got tissues. And one of the police went, I've got a hanky. He went like this and he held it in his hand and he went, it's clean, it's not new. And he went, as long as it's clean, that's fine, but you won't get it back. He went, no, she can have it. She's welcome. And give me the hanky, and it was one of those hankies with a little blue initial in, but I can't remember what the initial was, but it was one of those. And they, they said to me, blow in that, and I was blowing in this hanky. Okay, fine. Came back, and about five minutes before my brother came, they went, best thing you could have done having those tests, well, you're, you're eliminated. We know you didn't do it. But two days later, when they said, oh, you were Linda Calvey, and I said, but you know I didn't do it. He said, do we? How do we know that? I said, because of the tests you did. 
you eliminated me. He said, what tests are they then? We don't remember. Bastards. Mm. Sometimes then you get the police, they can't catch armed robbers. So they think, right, I'm just going to make up a crime to get this person off the streets. The end justifies the means. Now, you'd already done your sentence with the armed robberies, but you're still associating with armed robbers. Do you think they thought you were still active and they thought the end justifies the means? I don't know if they thought I was active. Um, as I said, I'd actually I had a legitimate job then. I'd, I'd started a business up with my sister. Um, and they could have watched me seven days a week and have thought, we should don't do anything. But they decided when I was Linda Calvey that, oh, she's committed the murder. And they changed it totally. And there was, we had a forensic officer that came in and he said, um, they had my jacket. And he said, I had this jacket. He said, and I had a life-size dummy of Linda Calvey put in the kitchen where she said she was. He said, and the only way she could have shot Ron Cook is if her arms were eight foot long. <laughs> How did I get a guilty? That's insane. Yeah. In America, they say that a jury will indict a ham sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, well, we can see her arms are exactly the same length as everybody else's. Did you take the stand? Yes. How did that feel? I was on the stand for three days and I told, totally told the truth the whole way through. Did they bring up your history and your prior conviction? Yeah. So you didn't have a chance at that no. stage? Because they said, um, well, you, you would know about all these things because of your previous convictions for armed robbery. And the judge went, don't remember that jury, that's inadmissible. <gasps> but the things that juries remember the most are the things they're told not to remember. That should have been a new trial right there. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe what, what they've yeah. done to you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you... Because you, you would, if somebody has a conversation with you and they say, one, oh, God, don't remember that. Of course. That. That's the one thing you remember. Don't Google that. You're going to Google it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah of course. So you get up on the stand, you tell the truth. Did you think you had a, a prayer, a hope of getting yes, out? Yes, I did. I really did. And my, um, my QC, everybody, they said, Linda, you can't get convicted. How can they convict you? All the forensic evidence proved you didn't do it. Although they denied doing the, the gun residue tests. And I said they did them. And then appeal? Well, the judge made us an appellant from the court, which is the only, it's only ever happened once prior in English written history. But the appeal was denied. It went up so quick. They said, even though we feel there are some areas that are wrong in this case, there was no fresh evidence. Mm. So there was nothing for them to, yeah. So you've harnessed everything that you've been through to become a writer. So congratulations on that. Thank you. You've got this book where Martina Cole has written. Martina Cole has, has done the foreword in this book and it's the first time that she has ever done a foreword for anybody. And although it is fiction, I think people might read it and think, is it? <laughs> fiction based on experience. On experiences, yeah. So what's, what's the, the first book called? 
The Black Widow, which is my life story. And have you been married many times? Um, three. Three times. Yes. So a Black Widow is known as someone who bad things tend to happen to their husbands. Mm. And we've seen that today, haven't we, on this interview? Yeah. Um, the third husband? was Well, Ronnie Cook was... But no, my actual last husband yeah. was George and he died of cancer. With the Rolls Royce. And even the, the police couldn't blame me for cancer. <laughs> <laughs> so your life story is in The Black Widow. What year did that come out? Um, that came out three years ago. Um, the Black Widow came out by Mirror Books and my new book, um, The Locksmith, is out by Welbeck. And you're, and, and you're still writing by hand. I'm still writing by hand. <laughs> <laughs> but I might decide I'll start talking to the computer and that can do it for me. Looking back on your life story for the first book, were you like, wow, what, what you know, all these things, how, how did I get through this and how am I alive I today? look back and, and think, how did... How did all those things happen to me in my life? Is it almost like looking back at a different person? Yeah, it is. It is. The period of the armed robberies in particular then, when you look back on that, what do you think? It's, it, I think it's a person that's totally alien to me. I mean, the prospect of picking up a gun right now and just going in somewhere. Yeah. No, it's, it's so totally alien. And... Um, I just wish my mum and dad could have seen me become oh. a legitimate writer. Oh, that's a shame. Well, yeah. the spirit of them is yeah. with you now. Yeah. They say that people who engage in that kind of crime are adrenaline junkies. Have you had to replace the need for excitement with something else? No, no. I've, my focus now is my writing. Yeah. Do you help um, prisoners? I would, I would dearly like to go and visit in prisons and talk to prisoners. Yeah. Um, as I was saying, my friend Tracy, she does go in. Mm -hmm. I don't think they'd have me, but I'd love to go in. And a lot I think of the girls do would. Go in. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I think girls would get a lot from me. Yeah, I was going to send every year before the pandemic, yeah. and um, great reception with the women mm. in the. There's a guy who runs that. If you want, I could put your name forward for when the pandemic ends, yeah. if you wanted to. Yeah, I would like to do it. There's one on your side as well. Oh, no, is, there, is there a women's one on your side? On near Essex side, isn't there? I don't know. There's a, I mean, Holloway's closed Holloway now, closed, isn't it? Yeah. And Bullwood Hall is now men. That was women. Okay. I was in there. Cook and Wood is now men. Right. I was in there. Yeah. I think, as we were saying earlier, the female population is so much smaller than the male yeah and they say that a lot of women are in prison because of men yeah Did you find and that, that is the, the truth actually yeah that is the truth drugs especially with the war on drugs holding mm. drugs holding guns things like that mm. linda is there anything you would like to say in conclusion to the people watching this video um well i'd like to say um I'm very, very remorseful for what happened to me with my first sentence, and I regret it a great deal. My second sentence, um, I still believe to this day, one day somebody may have a conscience and say, do you know what, I'm retired, I've been out of the police force a long while. She did, she did tell the truth. Um, but in the meantime, please enjoy my books. I'm getting really good receptions with them and I hope you enjoy them.
What a fascinating <laughs> interview we have had today. Not many people imagine a young woman is just going to pick up a gun and storm into a post office with a guy yelling, you know, I know your money, I know your money, blah, 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 whatever. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about this. Uh, please go down in the description box and support Linda's work. I'm sure many of you are interested in reading The Black Widow and The Locksmith. And if people want to reach out to you... It's you... had really good reviews. I bet it has. It's really had good reviews. Are you available like on social media for people who want to send messages yes, to you? Yes. Um, there is actually... My children have opened a site um, called The Black Widow. So if anybody would like to join and know what I'm up to, please do. So that link will be down there as well. Um, huge thank you to Joe and James for coming out today. We're filming free podcasts today. <laughs> we had a double booking situation, so it's going to be a late one. And a huge thank you for all the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom corner of the screen. And thanks to everyone who's gone in the description box and supported and clicked on all of our other links. Are we going to do a socially distanced elbow bump? Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. That was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I yeah. enjoyed it. Did yeah, you? Oh, lovely to meet you. Yes. Yeah. I could talk to you all day. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah.